Oh, Heavenly Father, we come to you as a body, and we come because some of our people are hurting today, people that have lost loved ones, people that are uh, facing the hospitalization of people that they love, people that are going through cancer and illness, people that are facing surgery. We've got all kinds of things going on, as well as people that are not physically ill, but Lord, they are mentally and emotionally suffering because of problems in their family, problems in their marriage, problems in their home, and we pray for them. We pray for people in our church body that are suffering because of needs that they have that are not yet met, because we know you promised to meet all of our needs according to your riches and glory, and it's just a matter of when, not if. And I pray, Lord, that you would give them hope and encouragement today. I pray today that you would help us to know how we are to function in this lost, broken, hell-bound, dying world. And help us not to just follow along and play follow the leader, because we're not to follow the world. We're in the world, yes, but we're not of the world, because we were put here by you, and our allegiance is to you, and we follow you. Show us how to do that. Show us how to do it with wisdom. You said that we are to be wise as serpents, but harmless as doves. And we don't know quite how to do that in every situation, Lord. We pray you would teach us. And we pray that uh, when it comes to doing things like loving our enemies and doing good to those who despitefully use us, help us, Lord, to do that and to do it with the right attitude for the glory of God and for the sake of the gospel. <clears throat> Help us, Father, to learn and to uh, function as the body of Christ. Help us to know where we fit into this local body. And also, Lord, help us to know what our role is in the witnessing of Christ and the discipleship of the saved and uh, what it is that we are to pray about, what it is that we are to be involved in, how we're supposed to serve. And I pray that you would be our motivation, you would be our glory, you would be our zeal. And I pray, Lord, that we would find ourselves getting more and more excited as the days go by at the prospect that Jesus is coming again and we are closer now than we have ever been in human history to the return of the Lord. And I pray, Lord, that as we look in your word this morning that you would excite us. I pray that you would inform us. I pray that you would give us assurance. I pray that you would give us a sense of expectation. And I pray that you would also give us a heavenly mind. That we would set our mind on things above, not on the things of the earth. And forgive us for all the times we've done that, especially here lately. And so, Lord, may your glory be seen in our lives and in your word today. Bless other churches that are gathering at the same time that we are. Bless churches around the world. Bless the persecuted believers who are gathering and who are suffering for your sake. And uh, we pray that you would have mercy on our nation and restore us and restore our churches. And we pray that it would all be for the glory and honor of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's in his name that we pray for one another. Amen. Let's uh, take our Bibles this morning and let's turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 
And we uh, started a couple of weeks ago. I started to say last week, but I was not here last week. But uh, we started uh, uh, saying, may this be the day. We don't know when the Lord is going to return, but we should always be ready for it, ready for the return of the Lord. And I find it interesting that there are people who are afraid of that day. They're afraid of the end times. They're afraid of the Lord's return because of the things that are prophesied. But we should not be afraid. This is supposed to be a passage that brings comfort and that it brings strength to believers, not fear or terror or anything like that. And so the uh, Thessalonian believers have kind of uh, been in a mess. And uh, they didn't have much time with the Apostle Paul. And let's also remember, they did not have the completed canon of Scripture, all 66 books of the Bible. And so they didn't have very much that they could refer to. And when we think about the coming of the Lord, and, and I find it strategic that in chapter 4, Paul puts this about the coming of the Lord where he does. Because what difference does it make? Well, some people in Thessalonica were depressed because they were told that they and their loved ones had missed the return of Christ. All they knew is that he was coming back, and then these people came in and said, well, isn't that too bad? Can you imagine if you are at the funeral of your wife or your husband or your child, and as they lower that casket into the grave and they begin to cover it up, someone comes up beside you who apparently is a church leader and uh, someone knowledgeable in the scriptures at least, and they come up and they say, well, how are you doing? And you say, well, it hurts. I'm having a hard time. And they say, yeah, I can understand that, especially since, and they call the name of your child, especially since they're not going to make it into the kingdom of God because they missed the coming of the Lord. Now, how would you feel? Now, it's easy for us because we know better to say, well, they shouldn't feel that way or they shouldn't think about that. But consider you're a Thessalonian believer. You don't know, and they might be right. What happens to the people who die before Jesus comes? <clears throat> Are they just left out? Did they not make it? You know, Jehovah's Witnesses have said for years only 144,000 are going to make it into paradise. Well, what about all the rest of the people? What, what happens then? And that's kind of what was happening in Thessalonica. And so you can imagine this congregation, there would be a certain amount of depression that people were facing because death was not something that they looked at biblically. It's not something that they looked at doctrinally. All they saw was the emotion of it. They were grief-stricken. They were hurting in all of this. They were also confused. They're confused about, well, then where are my dead family members and friends? Where are they? What happened to them? Are they just in the grave? Is their soul in the grave with them? Is it uh, that type of a thing? Or did they go to hell? Or are they just vanished? Are they just gone? What is it that has happened to them? And then there were other people that were kind of uh, manipulated. And so they were told, well, if the Lord Jesus is coming back again, and it's coming back at any day, why are you going to work? <clears throat> why are you uh, paying your bills? I heard somebody say uh, decades ago, 
that uh, they were going to quit making their house payment because Jesus is coming and it's going to be the Antichrist anyway. Well, wouldn't that be nice? I wonder where they are now. wonder what they're thinking now. They may be part of the homeless population right now. I don't know. But that's not the way you're, we're supposed to think about this. And yet the Thessalonians didn't know that. Because if somebody came up to, to you and you didn't know any more than they did. And they said, you know what? Let's show our faith in the Lord. And let's show our confidence in His Word by going to a mountaintop and waiting for Him and being ready whenever He returns. Well, I mean, maybe you would be manipulated into that. Maybe you wouldn't. I don't know. But apparently some of the Thessalonian believers are going, yeah, let's be there, ready to meet Jesus. And you have to admire the fact that they were enthusiastic. But, uh, well, as somebody said, we need to live as though the Lord will return today. And we need to plan as though he's not coming back for a hundred years. There's a balance in there. And the Thessalonian believers, well, they didn't quite know all of that because, well, like somebody said, you don't know what you don't know. And they really didn't know. They were ignorant in all of this. And that's why Paul in this passage addresses what he calls their ignorance. <clears throat> Can you imagine this? Somebody comes up to you and they say, uh, what would you do yesterday? And you go, oh, I went to work. What would you do? And this other person says, I have been waiting for the Lord, you know. And all who are faithful would be with me. Why are you not waiting for the Lord? Can you imagine how easy, because we know this kind of stuff works, because we can be guilted and shamed and manipulated into doing things. So some of these people in Thessalonica, I have no doubt, were not only going up to the mountaintop in their white robes waiting for the Lord to return, they were pressuring other people. And these other people were saying, uh, because I have bills to pay, because I have children to feed. And then can you imagine this super spiritual, pious person saying, well, I do too, but I just trust the Lord. Why can't you have the faith that I have? Is that the faith we're supposed to have? Is that what I'm supposed to do? Aren't I supposed to take care of my family or am I? Is it a lack of faith to go to work and that type of thing? I mean, you can see all kinds of things that Paul is addressing here and will address that is kind of stirring up a lot of stuff here. And then there's also a certain amount of guilt going around because these people in their white robe, I don't know if they really did white robes or not, but the picture, you get it? When they say, well, if you are going to go to work... Give me some money because I need a hamburger. Okay. Well, why should I give you money? Because I'm one of the faithful ones. And you're supposed to support those who are faithful. Remember in the book of Acts, the early church, they shared their possessions. Okay, so the guilt is coming on that if you aren't going to be as faithful as I am, you ought to support the faithful people like me. Just dripping with pride and arrogance and selfishness and all of this kind of stuff that is happening. Not to mention 
If you'll remember back in the first part of chapter 4, Paul said to the Thessalonians, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. And they lived, as we saw before and today, much like our own except worse, where marriage vows and homosexuality and all of these kind of things were just everyday parts of life. No big deal. No big deal. And so there were probably some people that were kind of saying, well, if the Lord is coming tomorrow and this is the end, then eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And so Paul addresses all of this in chapter 4, and these early verses tell us how we're supposed to live until the Lord returns. So all of this kind of stuff is swirling around in the congregation there at Thessalonica. There's a lot of confusion. Some people thought this, some people thought the opposite, and uh, they're just, just uh, a big, big mess. And so Paul begins to address it here in 1 Thessalonians 4. And we'll back up to where we were two weeks ago to verse 13. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if, or better, since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself, that's an important word there, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with a voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Here's the best part of the passage. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Let that sink in. Always be with the Lord. And so he says, he gives a command here, it's an uh, imperative. Therefore, comfort one another with what? Good expressions, a Hallmark card, a cliche, a bumper sticker, a Facebook meme. No, these words. And we downplay so many times the word of God without meaning to. Sometimes, well, um, there was a pastor I served under that I heard somebody say, uh, if you go see the pastor, it doesn't do any good. All he'll do is give you scripture. Okay? That shows the lack of confidence that we have in the Word of God. Let me ask you a question. Does the Word of God bring comfort to those who are in sorrow? Well, it certainly should. If it's believed and received, it certainly should. And Paul said, this is a command. We take these words and we use it to comfort. Perikolaitai is the word. And it is meaning to also to encourage, to lift up somebody else. 
And so we are to do this because we live in a world of discouragement just like they did. We live in a world where people get things wrong. We're living in a world now where what was said in Isaiah is literally true. People are calling uh, light darkness. They're calling good evil and evil good. They just are renaming everything and things that just even a few years ago seemed to be unthinkable. Now they're not only accepted, but they are legalized and they're even applauded. By other people. It's a Romans 1 type world as well. So our world is not much different than the Thessalonican world. So you can imagine as they, these baby Christians, are trying to make it through the world. They're trying to make it in the world in which they live. And yet Paul is addressing something. He said, I don't want you to be ignorant, ignorant, with, without knowledge. The idea is to be an agnostic about these particular things. Without knowledge is what agnostic means. And so these people couldn't really act on anything because they didn't have any knowledge. They didn't understand it. They were led astray. They were corrupted. There, was, there were things that were coming into their lives that uh, they were allowing in. And they allowed it into their lives because they didn't have a real knowledge of the truth. And Paul is broken hearted about all of this. And he's broken hearted about the ignorance that the Thessalonian believers had. And I would assume too that the Holy Spirit is grieved by the ignorance that we ourselves might have about certain things. Things that we should know by now but we don't. Things that we have been taught but we hadn't really received it, hadn't really acted on it. We didn't take it all that seriously when it was taught and so we have all kinds of corruption in our lives. If you take a car and you don't change the oil in it and the oil gets dirty, that engine is going to break down eventually. And in the same way, when our spiritual lives are not clean and when we are not pure in the way that we think and live and operate and are motivated by, then it causes things in our, life to, our lives to break down. This is no doubt happening even among the believers in Thessalonica. Their lives are beginning to break apart. They're beginning to have conflict. They're beginning to have questions. There's confusion. There are seeds of false doctrine being sold in, uh, sown into their lives. And so Paul addresses this. So uh, think about this. Point number one. Believers need to be informed. In other words, ignorance is not bliss for a child of God. You need to know. And so much of Everything that we do as a church and the things that we do as individual believers, they are based upon our knowledge. And that knowledge is either going to be good knowledge or it's going to be bad knowledge. It's going to be, as the writer of Proverbs would say, it's going to be wise or it's going to be foolish. And uh, how you act is going to determine or reveal, I guess we should say, what you really are. Are you a wise person or are you a fool? In fact, it goes back to what Jesus said, that two men built a house and they built it and uh, uh, side by side, apparently. One built on the rock and one built on the sand. Well, the storm came. And remember that in this parable, the same storm hit both houses. Don't think that just because you build yours on the rock, you're exempt from the storm. No. Same storm hit both of them, and what happened? The house on the uh, sand crashed, and great was its fall, but the house on the rock 
stood firm. And we teach our children to sing, The wise man built his house upon the rock. Why? Because you can also be a fool, and the foolish man built his house upon the sand. It even comes down to believing the word of God, even at salvation. Any wisdom that you have in salvation, in trusting the Lord and understanding His Word, understand where that came from. From the only wise God who imparted that to you and has saved you. And so you are starting your life out that moment that you were born again, building your life upon the rock. And you are to continue doing that by taking heed to the Word of God. But if you don't know it, you can't take heed to it. If you don't really get it and understand it, you can't take heed to it. In fact, you might even think you are, but then you find out later that you were not. And so Paul said, I don't want you to be ignorant because ignorance is not bliss. Ignorance is an opportunity for the enemy to deceive. And so we want to know as much as we possibly can about the Word of God. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren. So this is a teaching for believers concerning those who have fallen asleep. Now, falling asleep, fallen asleep there, is just a metaphor for death. It's the way the body looks when it dies. It quits functioning. It quits working. Uh, ceases activity. And uh, many times the eyes are closed and the person looks like they are sleeping. But... Uh, that's actually saying that they are uh, dead. It's a state of the body, not a state of the soul. And they're lifeless in the body. And so this is to remind us that this state, bodily death, is temporary. When people go to sleep, somebody says, I'm going to take a nap. Or even in the evening when they say, I go to bed, that's not something that they intend to be permanent. And it's not something you understand to be as permanent. You're going to see, okay, see you in the morning. Okay, I'll see you when you get up, because sleep is a temporary thing. Paul is driving home that death is a temporary thing for the people of God. God has plans for that body, and he is going to fulfill that plan, but only for the brethren. This is something that is for believers. This is a Christian doctrine. Okay. Secondly, believers need assurance. We sing Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Why do we do that? Because we need it. We need to be assured every day. In fact, the Bible says in Romans 8, 16, that His Spirit, the Holy Spirit, bears witness with our spirit, our new nature, that we are children of God. Why? Because we need that. We need assurance. We go through times of doubt. We go through times of fear. We go through those times when we're not sure. We go through those times when we may get kind of shaken up. And yet God assures us of our salvation. If you're struggling like I did for so long with doubt about your salvation, let me just uh, tell you today, nobody is more interested in you getting this settled than God is. It's God who identifies us as his child. It's God who has his spirit bear witness with our spirit that we are children of God. But in this case, the Thessalonian believers needed another type of assurance. The kind of assurance, it says, that answers the question, what happened? What happened to my wife when she died? What happened to my husband when he died? 
What happened to my precious little baby, my precious child? What happened to my aunt or my uncle? What happened to my friend? What happened to those people that I love so much? And so Paul says, I write this, not only so you won't be ignorant, but so that you don't sorrow as others who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring, this is important, with him those who sleep or who died in Jesus. Now, we're not reading this and going, oh, they're not dead, they're, they're just asleep. No, no, they're dead. They're dead. And Paul acknowledges that. And he doesn't say that we walk around saying, oh, no, I'm not going to sorrow. They're in heaven. No, you sorrow because you love them and because you miss them and because there's an empty place in your heart and an empty place in your home when someone you love goes to be with the Lord. However, he said, lest you sorrow as those who have no hope. The difference is we sorrow, all of us sorrow, lost people sorrow, saved people have sorrow. The difference is the hope. And what is the hope? The confident assurance in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have believed in him and we know that he died and he was raised from the dead. And just like him, we too will die and then we will be raised from the dead. And so when you go out to the cemetery, the other day I went out to the cemetery for the first time in uh, these years since Dad died. Last time I was there was at his funeral, and uh, so got to go back and see it. It's kind of, some of you know what this is like. When you look down at the headstones and you see both your mom's name and her grave and your dad's name and his grave, there's something that's just kind of, even at my advanced age, it's kind of disconcerting, isn't it? You feel a little bit orphaned, feel a little bit alone. And I remember uh, my dad used to say whenever the uh, rapture takes place, you know where I want to be? No, Dad, where do you want to be? I want to be in the cemetery by your mom's grave. Why is that? Because when she comes up, with that six-foot head start she's going to get, I'm going to take her hand and we'll just go up together. Well, we were standing there by the grave, and I thought, you'll be in it together. You'll be in it together. But what if I didn't have that hope? Because it's sad being without your parents. Can anybody say amen to that? It's sad. Sad to be without a son or a daughter. Or a wife or a husband, isn't it? It's sad. And there's no two ways about it. But what if? What if? I did a funeral one time for somebody I didn't know who was obviously just lost. The family was lost. And I can't preach anybody into heaven. I don't give them a send-off because they're already in one of two places, aren't they? When you watch a family that is lost come up to the casket, and I've watched a lot of you do this, right? Think back. I've watched you come to see your loved one in the casket. And I've heard you say words like, 
I'll see you again on the other side. I can't wait until we are together again in heaven with the Lord. Okay? You know what I mean? Have you ever watched somebody come to a casket who literally believed that what they were doing was the last time they would ever see their loved one's face again. And there is such hopelessness, such despair. You can see it on their faces and you can hear it in the tone of their voices. And this is what was happening to the Thessalonian believers. They apparently were being led to believe that because your loved one didn't survive until the coming of the Lord, that, uh, yeah, we just don't know. They missed it. You'll never see them again. And they were sorrowing without hope. And so Paul said, hey, hey, hold up. I don't want you to be ignorant about this. I want you to be informed because I don't want you to sorrow as those who have no hope. Believers need assurance. You need to know. You need to know where these loved ones are in the Lord. And so Paul goes on to tell us, as uh, we are thinking about this, that this is real, death is real, and it brings separation, and it brings sorrow. It's painful. I mean, it's a very real thing, but it's not hopeless, and it's not final because Jesus was raised, and we know, too, that we are going to be raised. Philippians 1.23 says, I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. What is Paul saying? There is something that happens at the point of death. I can go to be with Christ. It's not hopeless. It's not futile. It's not the end of anything. He writes in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 8. We are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Paul wanted people, you and me and others, to know that. Our loved ones are not floating around as ghosts. They're not angels that are getting their wings or anything like that at all. They are the saints of God called away to be with the Lord in heaven. And those of us who know Christ are going to see them again. And notice the phrase in the verse that we were looking at. Even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. Now, how is he going to bring them with him if they're down in the grave? Or if they're in hell, or if they're in purgatory, or if they're somewhere else. Well, here's the good news. If they are believers, they're in heaven. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. Departing from this world to be with Christ, as we just read. And so when the Lord comes back in this event that we find in 1 Thessalonians 4, it says, even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. There's a reunion coming, folks. And that person that you love, you're going to see them again if they were a Christian and you're a Christian. And you're going to meet them at this event because they're coming down and you're going up. And you're going to be meeting the Lord together in the air and then going back to heaven. And thus, Paul says, shall we ever be with the Lord? Can you imagine what that great event 
is going to be like. And the greatest thing is not going to be your reunion with your loved ones, as wonderful as that will be. The greatest thing that far outshadows that is going to be your reunion with the Lord Jesus Christ. That is going to be a forever thing. Now let's think about this third thing. Paul wrote this because believers need <clears throat> expectation. Expectation. Um, the Bible says <clears throat> in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, I got a little ahead. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, <clears throat> that through death, listen to this, he, Christ, might destroy him, that's the devil, who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. You know what the devil's weapon is? Fear of death. Fear of death. And you know why the Roman Empire couldn't handle Christians? Because Christians lost their fear of death. If you worship this God, we'll kill you. Okay. If you continue on, you do know we will execute you. Okay. Because when your faith is so strong, some of you may remember a guy that preached here many, many years ago named Andy Brum. And he was a criminal before he got saved. And one of the things that shook him up is when he was holding a gun in front of a young girl's face at a convenience store that he was robbing. This again, before he was saved. He said something to the effect of, you know I could kill you. And then she said, sudden death, sudden glory. And he couldn't get over that. Well, that's what happened here. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. When you take away the fear of death, this is why Jesus said, don't fear him who has the power to kill body and soul, but fear the one who has the power to cast both body and soul into hell. We get our priorities straightened out when we get saved, and we know who to fear, and that is to fear the Lord. And so as we look at this, what happened when the fear of death is gone, the devil's weapon is taken away. And that's why Paul wanted the believers in Thessalonica to know this stuff. So it took away the fear of death. It took the mystery out of it. They're absent from the body and they are present and safe with the Lord. Number three, believers need expectation. I find it interesting that in verse 17... When Paul talks about what happens to the dead believers, then he talks about what happens to the living believers. But did you notice something he said in there? Then not those who are alive, but we who are alive. Do you suppose Paul expected to be around when this took place? I think Paul was doing what we should do. He expected the return of the Lord to take place at any time and any day. I want to ask you a question. When's the last time you really thought about the coming of the Lord? Have you thought about it today? Will you think about it tomorrow? Did you think about it yesterday? Because it's something that is supposed to be on our minds. Then we who are alive and remain, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. We, the we in all of this. Don't just think that if it hasn't happened in the last 500 years, 
Never going to happen. What we should be saying is, hey, we're 500 years closer to the return of the Lord. It's later than it's ever been before. We are the closest generation to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ than any generation in history. We're that much closer, one day closer, one step closer, one breath closer to the return of the Lord. And so there ought to be that expectation. And as we witness to people, we ought to have that zeal and that expectation and that passion and that urgency. The Lord is going to come and it ought to be something that is real in our lives and something that is very, very believable in us. So some will be alive and they'll remain until the coming of the Lord. Some will already be dead at that. But here's the great thing that Paul wanted to get across. But all are going to be caught up to be with the Lord. It's what Christ promised in John 14. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. And that's where that famous verse, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, Christ said. And so that sense of expectation. Do you have it? Have you lost it? Where is it? You ought to be ready for the Lord to come at any time. And then number four, Paul writes this because believers need a heavenly perspective while they are on earth. And so uh, thus shall we always be with the Lord. And therefore, what do we do with this? We comfort, we encourage one another with these words. I've heard some people say, and I've seen it on some church signs before, don't be so heavenly minded that you are no earthly good. Well, that's opposite of what the scripture says. Colossians chapter 3 says in verse 1, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, that links together with what we're looking at, then you also will appear with Him in glory. And so the reunion here, the focus of this reunion is on the Lord. And the comfort here is the word paracolite, and it is the word that means to comfort, or the word that means to encourage. And so we encourage one another with these words. Keep looking up. Hang in there. Jesus is coming again. One day this will all be over. John MacArthur writes, The primary purpose of this passage is not to teach a scheme of prophecy, but rather to provide encouragement to those Christians whose loved ones have died. The comfort here is based on the following. Number one, the dead will be resurrected and will participate in the Lord's coming for his own. Number two, when Christ comes, the living will be reunited forever with their loved ones. And number three, they will all, and that's the important word, all be with the Lord eternally. No one misses out. 
And so we kind of sum it up by just saying this. In previous verses, the Thessalonians were told in the early part of chapter 4, abound more and more to please God, to grow in Christ, to abstain from sexual immorality, to live in submission to the Word, to increase in love and to work, to supply your needs, and to have a good testimony toward outsiders. Boy, it gets tiring sometimes, doesn't it? It gets old sometimes. So what's our motivation? Here's the encouragement. Jesus is coming. Go to work tomorrow. Jesus is coming. Take care of your family because Jesus is coming. Have a good testimony because Jesus is coming. Keep fighting the battle and keep your life pure because Jesus is coming. And it could be any day. Paul writes to them to give comfort when loved ones died. And keep in mind, in Thessalonica, they weren't dying from COVID. They weren't dying so much from cancer or anything. There was per persecution that was coming after them. They were being arrested. They were being slaughtered. They were being thrown to lions. They were having their children thrown up in the air and then caught on a sword. That kind of thing was happening. That would be far worse than anything we've ever experienced. We think we have it bad. Can you imagine? And understand that no one will miss the coming of the Lord. And whether living or dead, we will all be included and we will be reunited with the Lord and with them. And so what's the encouragement in the times of our deepest grief? What's the encouragement? Jesus is coming. And we are to comfort. Uh, we're to uh, have comfort for facing our own death. What, what if you hear today or tomorrow or next week that you've got cancer, stage four, and they're calling in hospice? How do you handle it? I pray for Nancy Hackett as she goes through all of this. Uh, how do you have comfort for your own death? Because all of us are going to die, and it could be at an unexpected time, or you could know it. Hard to handle some of that, isn't it? Well, here's what Paul says. You're going to be called out and taken up. This is not the end. It's not the finality of anything. And you will receive a new and glorified body. Boy, that sounds really good when you hurt enough, when you're weak enough, when life is hard enough to get a new glorified body. And you will not be forgotten. You will not be overlooked. And you will forever be with the Lord. And what's the encouragement at the time of your own death? Jesus is coming. And even that body that may be put in the ground is going to be brought out because God is going to redeem us, body, soul, and spirit, because what He does, He does completely. And therefore, the cemetery is not a place of sadness or deadness or finality it is a place of hope. There's still a promise to be fulfilled. And what is that promise? And here it is. Be encouraged. Whatever you are, wherever you are, however life may be, here's the encouragement. Jesus is coming again. So serve your returning king while you have the opportunity. Do you know him? Are you ready for his return? Because, as we used to say when we played uh, hide-and-go-seek, remember when the person who was it got through counting, they said what? Ready or not, here I come. 
I wonder if that'll be the shout that we hear from the archangel. I don't know. Neither do you. But the most important thing is not what he will say. The most important thing is are you ready for him to say it? The shout. The trumpet. Caught up to meet the Lord in the air. Are you ready? You're going to die. And in the book of Amos it says prepare to meet your God. Are you prepared? Jesus came to earth and lived a sinless life. And then went to the cross as the innocent for the guilty. And took the punishment for our sins. Amazing. And he was able to do it in such a way that he could say it is finished. Then he died. They buried him in a tomb. But the tomb couldn't hold him. The stone couldn't keep him in. Jesus rose from the dead. And then 40 days later he ascended to the right hand of God the Father. Where he ever lives to pray for us. And he is waiting for that day when the time comes for him to return to get us. And that could be at any moment we live in expectation. Okay? Are you ready? If you're not, then today you need to repent of your sins and put your trust totally in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection as the full payment for your sins. Church can't do it for you. Sermons can't do it for you. Rituals can't do it for you. None of that works because you're a sinner and you need to have your sin paid for and only one sacrifice is acceptable and that's the sacrifice of Christ. Have you surrendered to Him? Have you trusted Him as Savior and Lord? For if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you shall be saved. How many of you can testify that that scripture is true in your life and experience? Amen. Amen. Because the Word of God is true. Not because we experience it, but we experience it because it is true. You can trust the Word of God. Will you trust Christ as your Savior and Lord? And will you do it today? I hope you'll consider that because death is coming for you and Jesus is also coming again. And we want to be ready when that happens. And God is the only one who has a way for us to be ready through Christ. Will you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, as we think about this, we could uh, debate, fight, argue, talk about all of our theories and all of our opinions about how, when, and where, and what all this means. And in doing all of that, sometimes we miss the simple point. We need to be ready Jesus is coming again. There are people we need to witness to. There are things we need to get right in our life. We need to have hope in the midst of our trials. We need to be encouraged and we need to encourage one another. Jesus is coming again. Thank you for that wonderful and marvelous truth. And I pray, Lord, that all of us would be found ready on that day. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.